this episode, Ryan explores the power of storytelling with writers and filmmakers Marsha Music, Tim Miller, and Julia Yazbek. They discuss the way that personal narrative can elevate the voices of underrepresented people. Together, they detail the intricate relationships their works have to people in place. This episode was recorded remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic and before the recent tragedy in Beirut, Lebanon. Today, we are joined by Marsha Music, um, a Detroit luminary, historian, literary artist, and overall amazing uh, creative individual, as well as T. Miller, performance poet, LGBTQ activist, and film producer, and last but not least, Julia Yesbeck, filmmaker, artist, and anthropologist. Welcome, everyone. All right, all right. So I'm really excited to hear about the things that you were working on for ArtX Detroit. Um, so we'll just dive right in. Marsha, can you tell us a bit about your ArtX Detroit project and yourself as a creative person? Well, my uh, project for ArtX uh, was originally a, a project highlighting a book. However, uh, in the process of working through the project, I ended up changing the focus of the book itself and doing another book than what I had originally intended. And so my ArtX project became uh, the the creation of the book and the launch events of the book, which were very, very gratifying to me. This is my first book, although I have been um, published in over a dozen anthologies about Detroit. Uh, but this was my first book on my own and I'm very proud of it. It is called The Detroitist. Can you tell us a little bit more about The Detroitist, the book? That is a really captivating title. Well, I have uh, for some time uh, self-identified as the Detroitist. I've called myself that because of my really singular focus on the city of Detroit and, of course, on uh, my hometown that exists within the city of Detroit, which is Highland Park, which is, of course, essential to the development of Detroit. But I called myself the Detroitist, and when it came time to name my first book, uh, that was the natural choice, the Detroitist, uh, because I have established myself as a uh, writer who uh, is focused on the city and focused on stories that I tell about my life and my family's life in the city. So um, I was uh, looking at how I could uh, bring together some of the writings that I have done uh, down through the last years. And I made the decision to pull together uh, five pieces of mine, two essays and three poems that I have written over the last few years. And I am very pleased because I always wanted to have kind of a pocketbook just for a, a very convenient, portable kind of book that you could just stick in a purse or stick in a backpack. And it has these stories that I've been writing about Detroit that have uh, been very highly acclaimed, very well received pieces that I've done. Wow, I can't wait to be able to dive into some of those stories and kind of learn more from the Detroitist, not a Detroitist, but the Detroitist. I am the um, Detroitist. <laughs> <laughs> so Julia, your work is also exploring some of your um, history and background um, within the city of Detroit and Beirut as well, correct? Um, can you just tell us about um, your creative practice and also what you were exploring with um, ArtX Detroit? Yes, um, so my project was called Maritain Maritain, which is Arabic for twice. And I, the redundancy is deliberate. <laughs> um, and it was a project that initially kind of grew out of um, a response I had to taking my first trip to Beirut, which was 
uh, September in the in September of 2018. Um, I had never been before. It was my first time there, and I've been wanting to go for a very long time. My dad's family is from Beirut, but I'm a fourth generation uh, Lebanese American, so. It's a so I was really kind of interested in thinking about identity and this kind of very long, um, in the kind of long term game of it. You know, we we certainly talk a lot and hear a lot about um, first and second generation immigrants and um, and they have very real struggles, no doubt. Um, but I was kind of interested in sort of like what happens at like at that kind of longer end of the spectrum in terms of our relationship to these places that. Um, we have very little connection to, but yet are a part of who we think we are or how we identify ourselves. And, um, and so for me, it was really interesting because my trip to Beirut was, um, marked by a sort of odd sense of just sort of ambiguity. Like I didn't, um, I didn't have like a super romanticized, you know, like, oh, this is my, my motherland, (laughs) you know, this is my home. I have returned kind of feeling. Um, but it felt familiar in a way that, was less romantic than just sort of familiar in a in a kind of dull way. I mean, I hate to use that word because it was still a great experience, but um, so what I was interested in playing with or exploring in this piece was romanticization as a concept and how it relates to nostalgia and to memory and to the ways that we think of former places or places as they used to be. And so I was kind of took as a jumping point for the film project. It was a uh, it's just all shot on Super 8. I think in the end, it's still a work in progress, but I think in the end, it will probably be around um, 20 minutes or so, so a short. But the jumping off point was also I was interested in the idea that both Detroit and Beirut have at one time called themselves the Paris of the, like, fill in the blank, the Paris of the Middle East or the Paris of the Midwest. And so I was interested in thinking about what it meant to have this kind of backward-looking way of of thinking about a place and it's sort of glorified times, you know, whatever that might mean in relation to this third, very kind of stereotypical romantic place. And I've never been to Paris, so, (laughs) so all the better. Um, But when I started working on the project, actually, I kind of ended up once I did a a rough cut and did a rough cut screening in December at the um, Arab American National Museum, uh, that, that kind of cut of the piece really, ended up being a little bit more about motherhood as well and thinking about the relationships between even sort of metaphorically um, between motherhood and motherland uh, and kind of trying to get at some of those, the kind of more nuanced spaces in there that have to do with the ways that both are, are romanticized, but also the complicated relationships that we have to these ideas, I guess. So that's kind of where it sits. Um, uh, yeah, it's still a work in progress, though. So I'm still kind of like curious to see where it lands when it's all done. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Thinking about um, Detroit, you know, you do hear about this history of Detroit looking at itself as the, the Paris of the Midwest. And that does a really interesting parallel between Beirut and those both being your stories. So, T, you are also exploring uh, life in Detroit in some really unique ways through filmmaking. Um, can you tell us about the work that you uh, have been exploring with um, RX Detroit and your practice? Of course. Um, so my project was uh, the trailer to a film that I'm uh, directing and producing called Raising Carlito. And um, Carlito is my nephew. Um, if anybody follows me, you know, uh, he's kind of very prominent in my life. Um, his, his father was murdered a few years ago in Detroit. And after that, um, his mother uh, is now serving an eight-year prison sentence, which is uh, it's kind of ironic that we're doing this today because we were actually here writing uh, character uh, reference letters to try to get her released from prison early. Um, but something that we were exploring with the trailer and, and with the film is what is it like to co-parent with women who are behind bars? Um, what is it like for women of color to raise children from behind bars. You know, we know how hard it is for you to actually be present when you're raising, you know, a black boy in America. So to think about what it's like to not be able to physically be here and and have to raise your kid with somebody else behind bars. So we were kind of exploring like a lot of um, 
the conflicts with that, you know, uh, Carlito was being raised between me, being raised between his grandmother, um, and then also with his mother, you know, sometimes all three of us have these uh, very vastly different ways of parenting. So uh, we wanted the film to kind of explore what that relationship looked like, but to also um, to highlight what it's like for the children that are in these situations. Um, I, I don't think that we have enough film that focus on, you know, uh, what, what are Carlito feelings and, um, you know, what is it like for him on a day-to-day basis? So it's a film that pretty much uh, follows his life, um, follows his, his mother's life in prison, but we're also bringing in different children who were raised in similar environments. Um, and we're also dealing with women who have, you know, been, the pris- been in prison, been released. Um, example of that is a woman who's in the film she lost her five-year-old son while she was in prison. He had a heart transplant and he passed away and she was not able to attend the funeral. And she had to go into, I think, the warden's office and, um, and basically be on like a Zoom funeral. And she's telling a story in the film of like how insensitive the warden is like filing papers and answering phone calls and doing all of this normal stuff while her whole life has been shaken and, and has, you know, ultimately been changed. So for me, Raising Carlito was just about exploring, you know, those relationships. So you'll see a lot of personal narrative, a lot of my story, a lot of Carlito's story. But again, um, a lot of other mothers in the film as well. So it was just about, you know, that relationship to co-parenting and being in prison. Wow. Yeah, that's so the work was a trailer and you're still in the process of creating the documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So this is really um, you were all exploring these deep and sort of complicated relationships with Detroit and with place. And so I would just like to ask you, um, what is the impact on the landscape that you're living in in Detroit on your creative practice? Well, for me, the current landscape is highly impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. And the way that that has um, affected the work that I do as a writer is that I found myself just as a way of self-comfort at first uh, I began writing about the first people that I had heard that had died and that I knew personally I was very distressed about the characterization of the victims those who had succumbed as just statistical um, examples. You know, I would hear on the news, you had these numbers of people dying and you had these statistics and you had all of these tropes about uh, poverty and, and lack of care and all these kind of things impacting this. But I was seeing a group of Detroiters or Detroit area people whose roots were in Detroit I was seeing them succumbing to this, and these were uh, very uh, accomplished middle class to upper middle class to even affluent Detroiters uh, who uh, had been very active in the city, active in the arts. Uh, I was very dedicated. I became... um, dedicated to wanting to tell their stories to put a face on the victims of the virus. Uh, I couldn't write about everybody, but I could write about those whom I knew. Unfortunately, I happened to know a lot of them. And so gradually I began to write about them one by one. And it uh, was something Uh, that I was unaccustomed to writing about people who had died. And I had to um, be very cautious about how I wrote, uh, maintain the utmost respect, utmost um, um, somberness, but at the same time celebrating the lives of these individuals. And so uh, I would say that it has, uh, the the atmosphere here in Detroit has truly uh, 
changed a trajectory of my work, at least for this period of time. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. It It is um, this sort of unprecedented attack, almost it feels like, in, on on people in, in Detroit. Yeah, um, it's more than just, you know, a virus or a flu, but it's something that's, um, it's unfathomable, I guess, to, to be able to capture the amount of loss and grief and anger and economic fallout as well that's going on. So I'm really... Um, glad that you're actually calling out that, you know, there is this element sometimes that comes up when you're looking at any kind of COVID news of either statistics or even this element of blame that somehow someone had a pre-existing condition or someone didn't obey quarantine or something like that, that is if somehow, you know, these um, beautiful people could be held accountable for something that um, was completely out of all of our controls in some way. So commend you on that work of commemorating um, their lives. And so, you know, since we are talking about, you know, now the pandemic, uh, COVID, this um, situation that we're in, Julia T., how has this affected your creative practice and, um, and your trajectory, the trajectory of your work? Um, I mean, for me personally, aside from me not being able to, let's say, go out and physically film, right? And to just continue that part of the practice. Uh, I think that the film will probably be a little different than it would have been before this pandemic. You know, now what I talk about writing those, those reference letters, you know, I'm in a state of panic of, you know, this film initially was about my nephew and about the relationship we have with his mother and co-parenting. But now I have to think, you know, what if she doesn't make it home? What if my nephew's mother gets sick? What, you know, what's happening in prison? So now I'm also thinking about, again, how many other people like my nephew who are in Detroit right now who are losing those parents and how am I going to have to explore uh, probably a different story when, when this is all said and done. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not writing much. I'm not filming much. I'm not doing a lot with raising Carlito um, because I think I'm feeling the same grief that everybody here in Detroit is feeling. Um, it feels very personal to me. Um, so a lot of my, uh, creativity, I feel like has been, been put on pause, but I will say that it, it, it has incited a different type of fear into me thinking about what is the end of Raising Carlito going to look like if something is to happen, you know, to his mother. Yeah. It's really important work you're doing because as, as, as like Detroit as a whole, the prison population has been disproportionately affected by COVID and, and it still seems that there haven't, you know, been um, precautions or care um, put in place um, to protect, you know, um, these people. And so how are you, how are you managing um, the fear that comes in with this sort of uncertainty as you continue to um, try to tell the story of Carlito and in your family? Uh, that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer, right? Mm, um, right. Because I don't know if I am managing the fear. You know, I think it, it exists. Um, and I'm kind of in a in a moment where I'm just how I feel is is how I feel, and I'm allowing that to kind of run through me. But at the same time, making sure that you know my nephew is here. You know, at the same time, making sure that you know I'm still functional and I'm still providing him with some sort of hope. Um, something that Marsha has been a part of in the past that I just did. Um, I think two weeks ago I did a global program called Science of Grief, and um, we did it online, and we did it with uh, our galleries out in uh, Dublin and in Atlanta, and I just wanted to make sure that if I was doing anything, that it was uh, providing people with space to come and talk about the grief that they're experiencing mm -hmm. and that type of fear that they're managing, so uh, that part of my creative process has been turning a little bit, but for me, I'm just, I, I don't really know the right answer to managing a fear. I'm just living day to day and taking it, um, you know, one hour at a time like everybody else, I think. Yeah, yeah, I don't think, I don't think there is a right answer. I think we're all in it where, you know, every, especially if you're on social media every day, you know, there's a different report and something different going on. Um, but even in the midst of this, you're still facilitating these conversations to at least um, talk about these things and, and to document the stories um, as it happens. Um, how about you, Julia? Oh, yeah, it's a hard, hard one to answer. Um, I, 
I mean, yeah, a lot of this film was originally going to be shot like in spaces in the city. Like I was very interested in a very kind of tactile engagement with this, with the city, um, both Beirut and Detroit. And, um, and I was still planning and still am planning on shooting a bit more in Detroit, but you know, can't do that so easily right now. Um, part of the issue for me has been that, um, because of COVID-19, I no longer have childcare. <laughs> so I have two young ones at home, a four-year-old and a two-year-old who, you know, need, need me, um, for a good part of the day. Uh, and it's, it's been very interesting because, um, you know, on the one hand, spending a lot of time with my kids offers like this incredible way to, um, just be with them in this moment and, and just not, you know, uh, use it as a way to not get kind of overwhelmed by fear because that is, I think something everyone who is paying attention at all is dealing with. And I think grief is absolutely the right way that we're all, you know, dealing with this in some grieving way. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an academic as well. So I, you know, get all kinds of, uh, emails and other types of proudings and from the academic world that are all like, pushing you to be stay and be and maintain some levels of productivity. And I just kind of, to be honest, I just can't right now. And I think that's okay. <laughs> and I've been really trying to, in a lot of ways, just be um, okay with, with not being really productive at the moment and just sitting with my kids and sitting with my thoughts and sitting with, you know, like this, you know, as much as we can sit with other people, sit with our loved ones and hear them and be with them in whatever ways we can, because um, yeah, for me, I mean, like the way I work, I work really slowly and it takes me a lot of time to kind of process stuff. So I don't know if the, um, pandemic will work its way into this film project in some way, but I might eventually do something, a short, another short piece otherwise, but I don't know. I mean, I kind of, in a lot of ways feel like everything we do after this, it will have affected in some way. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about, you know, these uh, kinds of artistic practices that are very um, inherently collaborative, like filmmaking or music or things like that, where they're sort of dependent upon um, engagement with other people or places and that not having that be a, a possibility. You know, there's certainly ways you can make films that don't do that. You can do found footage films or you can do whatever. But I don't know, I just felt like, um, you know, at, at a certain moment during the lockdown, I, I thought, I know I should just be shooting at home right now all the time. I should just be documenting all this. And I just thought, no, I can't. I just need to like, like take a pause, you know? And, and I don't know. I just, I think it's processing is the right word. I think T said that, um, like processing, just kind of processing is I think all I can really manage right now. Cause I don't think I'm actually even processing enough. Um, right. You know, we're in the midst of it. So we're in the midst of it. Yeah taking time to be human and to just, you know, reflect on where we are and to just be where we are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In looking at all of your works um, in general, I see just a lot of bravery in looking at these um, sometimes really tricky stories from looking back on the rebellion and kind of our own personal lineages, as well as, you know, looking at the complexities of raising children within this inequitable system, you know, as well as looking at, you know, kind of economic fallout from the past. So I just like to dive a little bit more into um, some of that work. So Marsha, you've long been called upon as sort of a historian of Detroit and kind of keeper of these Detroit stories. And I personally associate a lot of your work and kind of kicking off out of the um, the rebellion in Detroit? Well, I, I grew up in that era and my father was a record store owner. His name was Jovan Battle. And he had a record store that had moved from the old Hastings Street that was demolished in order to build the freeway. And he and the other storekeepers, shopkeepers that could survived such a move, ended up moving to what we know as the west side of Detroit and uh, centered in a 
area of the city called the 12th Street community. His store was located on 12th Street, and I can remember being there as a young person. I was about 13 years old when I could feel uh, the tension in the air, but it was driven by a vortex of social tumult. That was the days of the anti-Vietnam War movement, of the women's burgeoning movement of the 60s, the Black Power movement that was emerging. It was a, a time full of social upheaval. And so you could, you could feel a certain kind of prosperous Detroit energy, but you could also feel an undercurrent of social unrest up underneath all of it. And I, I could tell that even at my age, that young age. I remember being there um, and um, my, I remember experiencing my dad uh, getting a call on the night of July 23rd and being told that there was something going on on 12th Street. This was in the middle of the night. So from that point on, our lives at home changed and of course, Detroit itself changed because the destruction that was wrought was so great and the uh, tumult of that time was so great that it really changed the face of Detroit forever because it was, it was a, you know, when you have a, a, a cork that blows out of a, a bottle of some kind because of the internal pressure, uh, that pressure had been building in Detroit for many years. So I began to recount my personal stories about growing up in and around my dad's record store. I have been writing like this for some time. And growing up in Highland Park, which was a completely different atmosphere than on 12th Street. Highland Park, a very uh, middle-class, green, lush community, a couple of miles away from the 12th Street community. The 12th Street community was where my dad's record store was, was a lot of hustle and bustle and street life and music and bars and restaurants. It was a very commercial area. And it was right around the corner, uh, a five minute walk from Motown in Barry Gordy's emerging empire. So I began writing about these elements of the city and, and bearing witness to what I experienced, uh, witnessing my father's decline after the destruction of his store, also seeing the emergence of another era of Detroit during that period of time. Well, at the same time, um, I think that some of my witnessing dispels certain notions that came up about the city because the, the catastrophe in Detroit was so great that I think that myths grew up uh, around what happened in Detroit and they are tropes that simply are not true. And there were things that developed out of it, like people would say all the white people left Detroit after 1967, but that's just not true. The driving of whites away from the city, that's how I prefer to look at it, not just flight, but being driven from the city uh, by a number of interests and elements. That began uh, right after World War II in 1945. Uh, to some degree, 67 uh, was the culmination of a period of leaving, not the beginning of it, surely. There was a lot of change that accompanied uh, the 67 Rebellion, and it continues to be explored. And so I, I was very grateful to have been asked to play a part in the Detroit 67 project of the Historical Museum. And out of that emerged uh, a book called Detroit 67, and which is a, a very uh, in-depth look at um, the Rebellion of 1967 with some very... Um, um, illumined Detroit voices. Also, um, 
I was pleased to have been asked to be a narrator in the film that emerged from the Detroit 67 project called 12th and Claremont. Those two streets converged uh, to be the, the, the epicenter of the Detroit rebellion back in 67, 12th and Claremont. And so there's a wonderful movie, documentary film, that was made uh, as a result of uh, the Detroit 67 project of the museum. So I was very glad to be a part of uh, those uh, projects. So thank you for giving us um, that history. Um, whenever, whenever you speak, I feel like I learn um, something new. So T, I just, I think that I'm going to make an assumption. I think that you and I are of a generation um, that came um, after um, some of the fallout from uh, 67 rebellion. And um, I'm a kid of the eighties and the nineties. So, I, but um, you know, we experienced a very different kind of Detroit, not just Paris of the West, you know, and we didn't get to grow up in this kind of bustling urban sort of oasis. And so I think that your work is really addressing some of those systemic issues that have persisted since then. Um, can you talk a bit about um, some of the social issues that you're exploring as a, as an artist, as a filmmaker? Honestly, a lot of the work that I was doing before my brother died in 2013 was not nearly as important as the work I've been doing since my brother died. Um, I think that growing up in the inner city, uh, the, the, the bad people, the drug dealers, the, like, like these were my family members, these were my friends, these were people who I always saw as uh, human beings, right? And I, uh, the reason I talk about my brother so much is because after you know, his death in Detroit, a lot of people, you know, were trying to convince me um, that, I, that I basically he wasn't worthy of my grief because of his life, right? So I kind of went on this journey as an artist uh, to help people understand uh, the humanity in all of us. You know, my brother and ran with it. I think with this resurgence of Detroit, there's so much humanity being lost, very specifically for black Detroiters. Um, so I just always wanted it to be, or, or now I've, you know, kind of stepped in a role of me just saying like, no, you know, much like Marsha, like these people, they have stories and I'm going to tell those stories. Um, I, I, I live near Boston in Virginia Park and um, on my block, there's all of these white people who get up and run and jog and walk their dogs and all of that. Um, and then directly around the corner, those white people won't walk to where all of the black people are. The ones who still like stay up late, hang out at the park, drink out of the brown bags, you know, and, and to them, that's so scary. But to me, that makes me comfortable because that's like, that's what I remember when I was growing up. That's the Detroit that I know. So for me, my work has taken, taken on this role of, um, I just don't want you to forget about the Detroit that has always existed. I want you to know what my Detroit uh, looks like, but I also want you to know that like your Detroit is not better than my Detroit. My, my Detroit is human. My Detroit, you know, belong here. Um, so I think just, I think my role is that that's kind of what my role as an artist has evolved into since the death of my brother, just going into these different communities and, and really just kind of putting a story with, with, with a face um, and I'm proud of that. And I worked in a lot of high schools as well, um, you know, teaching poetry. And I remember I would go into these high schools and I would be so frustrated when students wouldn't show up to class. And, and then I had to, to realize that a lot of these students aren't coming to my poetry class, not because they hate school, not because they hate poems, but um, because their fathers have been taken away from them because their mothers have been taken away from them because they don't have the resources to come to school feeling comfortable and feeling clean. And so then that got me thinking about how I tied that into my nephew's story of his teachers don't know what he's going through when he goes to school. His teacher, you know, like everybody has their own story. Um, and I know that there's so many Detroiters uh, with their own story. So I think as an artist, it's, it's my uh, duty to make sure that we keep those stories alive in Detroit. You know, I feel like Marcia, I won't say uh, it's, it will pass any baton because I think Marsha can cover every Detroit forever. Um, but I hope that I can be, um, 
you know, one of those artists who who come in and and you know when Marsha decides that she she don't want to be the gatekeeper telling stories about Detroit, that it's artists like myself who come and give real and honest lens that you know people like her were, were always able to do. So I'm 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 about the honest story. I have a a line in a poem where I talk about. Do you guys know Terry, who's uh in, the guy who's always dancing in bright colors? Okay, he's a home. Well, I assume that he's homeless. He's always on Selden in second. Exactly. So in, in, in my Detroit poem, I, I say there's a there's a homeless man on the corner of Selden and Second, always dancing like his imaginary check had more money on it than he expected. And like every time somebody hears that line, they're like, oh, yeah. Right. And it, and it gives Terry a story. You know, it makes him more than just this person you kind of ride by here and there. He's a staple of Detroit. Like, I, you know. If he wasn't here, I would miss him. You know, when I don't see Terry, I remember I put a picture up on Faith on Instagram the other day of Terry at KFC. And uh, Taylor, Taylor Aldridge, she came into my inbox like, oh, my God, I just saw him, too. I was missing him so much. So to think about, like, that's my Detroit. You know, that's the Detroit that I grew up in. That's the Detroit that's under my belt. So I think that I just, you know, I've, I've always had this desire to be like, yo, we exist and I'm gonna give us, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a name to the faces and I'm gonna keep telling those stories. So I can only say with the question that you're asking me, I always have to go back to thank you, Marsha, because you carried a lot of it. And now us other storytellers are coming in and say, how do we keep up with the uh, sincerity and, and the humanity of, of your work? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, that was quite amazing. And you really, um, gave me a different perspective in thinking about Terry. I didn't know his name, you know, but he has been a part of, you know, a joyful experience that we can, that we've probably all had, you know, in that area of town. Um, so I, as you were talking about like capturing these stories, I, I thought about your work, Julia, as you refer to yourself also as an anthropologist. And I'm thinking about all of these um, kind of, false identities that we have around Detroit or these sort of misunderstandings around um, Detroit history. I'm thinking that there's a lot, there's probably a lot of parallels in Beirut, which, you know, has been no stranger to, you know, conflict and, and probably some, some, some misidentification in terms of like what the identity of that city is. And so you're in an interesting position and being, you know, having a lineage from this, you know, complicated place and then also being rooted in a, such a complicated place as Detroit. Yeah. Um, I want, yeah, I, gosh, where to start? I feel like I have a lot of things to say right now. I don't know how to say any of it. I'm not the wordsmiths of my, my, of T and, and Marsha here. Um, I actually, I just first want to say that I'm totally honored to be able to even have this conversation with you guys. I have such admiration for, for your work, all of you, uh, Ryan included and, and the two who we can't see, who I'm still learning and getting to know. But I, I mean, I really just want to say that, um, you know, I think that my own identity to the city and my own kind of place in the city has been something that I've been exploring with this piece in some ways, because, you know, I'm, I'm not African-American for those of you who can't see me. <laughs> um, and my, you know, I moved to Detroit about eight years ago, but it's been an interesting journey because I, for a while, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of complicated and, and overlapping and conflicting emotions that come with being a white Detroiter and trying to figure out how to be in this place in a respectful way. Uh, but I also like I, I learned some things that I didn't know about my own roots in this place, actually. And it, that was also very interesting. Like I, I learned that I didn't know before until I started doing some research on this project and looking into some of my own family history, like my, my grandfather on my dad's side, my, my, uh, Lebanese grandfather, he actually grew up in Ferndale, not too far from where I live now. I live on like the Northwest side. And, uh, and my mom's mom grew up on Hannah street, like also kind of on North side. And so I'm very much, you know, I, I actually, I think of Marsha's work a lot too, because I know she's written about that kind of generation of, um, white flight, as some people call it, you know, my, I'm very much a product of that. My, you know, my parents, they, their generation moved out and I grew up in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area and then moved back to the city in 2012. And my parents actually moved back at that time too. So now we're all here, but, um, but yeah, it's an interesting kind of, you know, it's funny because when I think about the kind of conceptual basis of, of the Maritain project, uh, 
the idea of twice also has to do with like a doubling or a return. And so in some ways I feel like I'm return. I was returning to Detroit, even though I wasn't born here because my family was from here, you know, like they were and, uh, for several generations. And, uh, my mom was born here. And when I think about Beirut, I also was really interested in that kind of complicated relationship of the idea of returning to a place that I had never been to and what that might mean. Um, and how I might have some sort of a, a sense of return to it, even though I had not been there before. Um, but yeah, in terms of, of thinking about all of this, you know, I think it's interesting because Detroit, like, yeah, there's, I mean, as you asked me about being an anthropologist, so ugh, another complicated thing. I mean, anthropology has a lot of, <laughs> you know, like it's a, it's cut, it's a, comes out of this very colonialist history. There's lots of ways in which I would often be like, oh, please don't call me an anthropologist. It's so problematic. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, like there are, you know, I wrote my, my dissertation, my PhD dissertation, um, on Detroit. And so I did delve a lot into the history and, you know, looked at work like Marsha's writing and many others who've told these very rich stories. And it's fascinating. And I mean, that is part of like my artistic practice is, um, you know, I wouldn't say it grows necessarily out of anthropology, but if there's anything that I take from that, it's an interest in histories and in stories um, and, and just trying to be respectful and to listen, really. I think listening is like a big, big part of what I try to do with my work. Um, and I think I, I take that from the anthropology side, you know, it's, it's obviously like, you know, as a lot of academic disciplines are, they're like rooted in horrible things of, you know, genocides and colonialism. And there's traces of that in them today, you know, for sure. And so there's, there's problems with that. But I think that with anthropology, there are some useful methodologies that I kind of have adapted to my own creative practice, like really kind of deep listening, like just listening to people when you get to a place and trying to like, not show up and be like, hey, I'm here and I'm going to fix whatever's wrong, but to just sit and really listen to what people have to say. Um, and to kind of, you know, uh, be a part of things that are already going on and rather than just sort of coming in and saying like, I'm going to start this or I'm going to do that. Um, so, I mean, I guess like having said all of that, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's Detroit is so, it's such a fascinating place. I love, I love being here. I love um, learning more and more about it. I don't think it ever, I'll ever get tired of learning about this city and about the amazing people here. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think that my work, a lot of my work deals with a lot of my artistic work deals with the city. And I don't feel in any way <clears throat> like that's drying up. You know, I feel like there's so much here to, um, spark my creative interest as well. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I think that it's through conversations like these where I can learn more about others work as well that, you know, inspires me and, and, and opens up the kind of, uh, great conversations that can come out of this type of thing. So, yeah, so thanks for bringing us all together, too. <laughs> Happy to be able to be yeah, in conversation with all of you um, in this time. And kind of as we as we start to bring our conversation to the close, I'm curious if there's any you know words that you'd like to put out there for the audience, for artists who may be listening or people who aren't um, as uh, familiar with Detroit. We're wanting, again, in the news a lot for things that might not be the full story. Um, so if any of you'd like to give us a final, final thought on the state of the arts in Detroit and our future, have at. Um, I, I would like to end with, you know, during this time, and this time has not ended, obviously, we've lost a lot of good Detroiters, you know, impactful Detroiters, storytellers in Detroit, you know, the Marlowe Stoudemire's, the Brenda Perry men's, when this is over, you know, they won't be here. So I think that as artists, it's important for us to uh, become familiar with their work, become familiar with, you know, what they've done and what they were hoping to accomplish. And we probably will never be able to fill those footsteps, but at least carry on the integrity and the storytelling of, of their work. Detroit uh, will forever be changed by this. So I think it's our responsibility now to to say, you know, what what are we going to step into? And what we should be stepping into 
is picking up where all of these other amazing storytellers in Detroit, unfortunately, you know, left off at. Uh, so for me, uh, that that's kind of what I'm stepping into, and I hope that every other artist kind of picks up and, and takes that call as as well, and make sure you know we're, we're representing the city well, and we're not letting the changes of Detroit change us. You know, like be who you are, be who you you know like like you talk about, like, this is my Detroit, this is Marshall Detroit, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, like, become familiar with it, and then keep, keep, keep talking about it, but, um, don't change with all this changing around us for me. Well, I, I feel that I was honored to have been asked, uh, by Drew Filth, uh, on behalf of the Metro Times, to write a piece about uh, what's uh, facing us in Detroit regarding uh, the coronavirus and hope. And I wrote a piece called Detroit is another name for hope because I have pondered for some time the fact that hope is really the driving energy in this city, even as much as it's famed creativity here, that hope has driven a great deal of the impulses here in Detroit. The very idea of having dreams to be physically realized, to be able to attempt to live in situations that are very, very challenging, yet to hold on in hopes that tomorrow is going to bring something better. Detroit is the city of hope. And I've believed that for some time. Um, so my hope right now in the arts community is the expansion of our concept of the arts to include ever deeper layers of the city as the arts community. You see, we, we for some time have had a kind of um, uh, uh, caste system of arts, of the arts. And you have a, a, a arts community of which I am a part that has um, uh, congregated itself in the new development of the city, uh, in the midtown, downtown axis of the city. Uh, and we are a very vibrant community, but deep in the outer layers of the city are people who have been functioning in the arts for years. Uh, there's a tendency in Detroit. Detroit is one of the most creative cities in the world. And it has literally bought the world music, the music to move to, the Motown music, the techno music, new eras of hip hop music. Uh, however, within the, the quote unquote arts uh, echelons, I will say, there's a tendency to view uh, this type of music is just entertainment and not the arts personified. And so I believe that the crisis may uh, bring forth more attention to what was lost in this crisis. You had a number, a, a large number of ballroom dancers. And these black ballroom dancers, they're mostly black, there are a few whites. And in fact, one of the very first prominent victims of, uh, from the ballroom community was um, Robinson, uh, the state representative Robinson. Um, I'm forgetting his first name. And he was a white guy and he was a fixture in the black ballroom community 
of these ballroom dancers that do um, uh, what's called Detroit ballroom and stepping. And this is a true art form of Detroit, yet it is never acknowledged or known or recognized within the inner sanctum of the arts. Uh, but the losses there were so great and so soon. Uh, I think that even the fact that it had these losses will bring some attention to their very existence. So I think that what is going to happen might be a reformation of the arts community. Uh, Mr. Donna Faye Collins, who was another one of the very first prominent Detroiters who died as a result of the virus. He was a commander of the Wayne County Sheriff's Department. However, he was one of the most uh, recognized figures in the DJ world, DJing uh, Detroit soul music on the radio. So the very fact that this virus has taken from us some of the voices of the city, these musical voices. Brenda Perryman was a playwright that put on and who wrote and produced uh, some of the most significant works we've seen in the city, namely one about the Ossian Sweet case. These are very real works. And this is from this deep bench of gifts that exist in the city. And I am hopeful. Uh, as I should be as a Detroiter, for we are the people of hope, that uh, we will have a greater amalgamation of the worlds of art that exist here in this city. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Thinking of Detroit as the meaning of hope, Detroit as hope, and uncovering those many, many layers of creativity all across our city, um, I am going to close our conversation with that beautiful word of, of hope and um, that vision of the future. I'm Ryan Myers Johnson, happy to be talking with you here from the northwest side of Detroit. I'm Marsha Music, and I am uh, coming from the Palmer Park District of Detroit. I'm Natasha T. Miller, and I am coming from uh, the historic area of Virginia Park in Detroit. And I'm Julia Yesvik, and I'm coming also from the Palmer Park area of Detroit. And thank you all again. And Marsha, you always have such a way of putting it so beautifully. So I, I love that we'll, that we'll end with your beautiful message of hope there. Bless your heart. Bless you, bless you. Thank you for listening. AXD Living X Podcast is a production of Root of Two and made possible with support from the Kresge Foundation. Mixed and edited by Red Carpet Lounge. Music for the series is by Pamela Wise. To find out more about the projects and artists, visit artxdetroit.com and download the companion Living X catalog featuring all 22 commissioned AXD works.